0: following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Just a little bit more about me so you can get uh, sort of a sense of who I am and that kind of stuff. The first thing I need to say up front, just in terms of full disclosure, is um, I'm an Australian. I'm so sorry. I mean... (laughs) There's nothing, literally nothing. Oh, someone's clapping. Thank you. There's literally nothing that I could do about it, honestly. It's just the way it was. I will say, as soon as I was old enough, I, I came over to New Zealand, and now I'm a solid... Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And now I, you know, solidly support the black caps and the all blacks and all those kinds of things and the lovely up and down journey that that, that is. So um, I, I actually, you know, as if Australian wasn't bad enough, it gets worse actually. I, I grew up wanting to be a physicist. Um, I know all of you think, oh my gosh, he's so weird now, isn't it? But that's, that's the way it was. It was actually just near the end of doing a, a PhD in physics that, um, that I, was, I was praying in my room one night and I felt God um, speak to me really clearly saying, I don't want you to be a physicist I want you to be a pastor. Now, this was unexpected and not altogether welcome, to be honest. Um, have Have any of you seen the Big Bang Theory? Is that a program that that, that any? I mean. I've... Not, no one at all. That's, no, I don't believe you. Yeah, there you go. So imagine that. I was, I was a lot, or well, probably still am a little bit like that. So, I mean, people and that kind of stuff, well, I'm not quite so sure. I, I was comfortable behind a computer. But um, God called me to do that and uh, some people gave me some advice. They said, look, you just can't go straight into Bible college. What you need to do is to get another job. So I got a job as a, um, as a management consultant for a while. I worked for a big company called Anderson Consulting. They're called Accenture now. And uh, it was a really great, great life. You, you're sort of, um, you know, they'd ring you up, say, be in Chicago on Thursday. So you'd fly over to Chicago and solve some problem for them. It was really fun. And uh, two years based here in Auckland, and then two years uh, based back in Sydney. It was while I was in Sydney that I um, met this wonderful woman, and suddenly be in Chicago on Thursday was not nearly as exciting as it had been before. And so uh, we started looking around for... um, for Bible colleges to study at, to train to be a pastor. And um, a friend of a friend of a friend was this guy. Some of you might know him. His name's Paul Windsor. Is that a name that's familiar here? And um, so he convinced me to come across to Kerry, And uh, I studied there for... um, uh, uh, for three years, then was the senior pastor at Hillsborough Baptist for a while. And um, then I did. Um, I, I tried to do a PhD in theology simultaneously with being a pastor and just wasn't smart enough to do that. So I, um, I uh, finished the role at, at Hillsborough and, uh, and did this PhD, which is sort of based on what I'm going to talk about. It's about the role of the spirit in, in the life of the church. I am, like Michael said, I care about the church. The church matters to me. And so that's what I wanted to, to talk to you about this morning. So um, uh, can we pray before we do that? And then um, uh, we'll get on from there. So Lord Jesus, we, um, we want to thank you for who you are. We want to thank you for what you did for us. We want to thank you that um, when you died and you rose again, You didn't leave us on our own, but you sent your Spirit to guide us and empower us and to enable us to be all and do all that you want us to do. And Lord, our prayer is that we would live up to who you've called us to be. Help us to be your people here, living for your purposes, pointing people to your kingdom and your incredible saving work. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Even though I'm, I'm super passionate about the church, I think the reality is, isn't it, that the church is not doing exceptionally well in the Western world at the moment. That's probably the understatement of the century. Um, uh, I've put a graph up there of statistics of the church in New Zealand over the last 100 years or so. And, I mean, you know, let's be honest, it's, it's kind of grim. Um, um, and the reality is that that picture there, the, the statistics picture, is, is only a small fraction of the truth as well, isn't it? Because... Um, As I imagine you're well aware, the church is not just decreasing in size, it's decreasing in status and significance as well. I mean, just as one example, whatever your position is on the euthanasia debates that are going on at the moment, I think the one thing that's really clear is that um, people in New Zealand simply don't care what the church thinks about this topic. When you look at it objectively, statistically, in, in the cold light of this world, there's only one conclusion that you can come to. In the Western world, the church is crumbling. Interestingly, the conclusion that you draw from looking at the picture of the church in the world is massively different from looking at the church in the Scriptures. If you look at the picture of the church in the world, you see a church that's hemorrhaging numbers. When you look at the Bible, you see a picture of a church that is impregnable. You know, Even the gates of hell will not stand against the church, Jesus said, Matthew sixteen nineteen. When you look at the world, you see a church that has little or no respect. When you look at the Bible, you see a church that has immeasurable importance. You know, The church is being built into a place where God himself chooses to dwell by his spirit, Ephesians 2.22. When you look at the world, you see a church that makes little or no difference, that has nothing worthwhile to say. But when you look at the Bible, you see a church that has huge cosmic influence through the church, The manifold wisdom of God is made known, Ephesians 3 verse 10. So the massive question you have to ask from looking at this is, how on earth do you hold those two pictures together? How do you make sense of that? On the one hand, you've got a church that's decreasing massively in in status and size and significance. On the other hand, you've got a church that's impregnable, inspiring and immeasurably important. What do you do with that? Well, the vast majority of responses to this, this this difficult challenge is to say, "Well, the problem, the problem is us. We're the problem. We need to do better. We need to, um, I don't know, be more organised, be more pragmatic. If we finally got our act together, these commentators say, then the church would recover its numbers, regain its respect, re-exert its influence." And often, these commentators will take their cues from the the the, the world. They will say, "Let's be more professional, like like the business world. That'll solve our problems." Or, "Let's be more entertaining." like the shows on TV. That'll solve our problems. Or let's be more polished, like a, a well-oiled marketing campaign. That'll solve our problems. That'll give us back the size and the status and the significance we so desperately crave. We have this great product, eternal life. All we've got to work out is how to sell it better. Now, although you can see where these responses are coming from, I don't think it's too hard to see that at their best, they're missing the point, And at worst, they're tragically misguided. If we try and outdo the world to win the world to Jesus, we're missing the point. You see where it ends up. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that the church is never, ever going to solve its problems by looking inwards at itself or looking outwards at the world. What I want to suggest is that rather than looking inwards or outwards to find the solution to the problem we're in, we've got to look upwards, If you you were to summarize the entire 100,000 words of my thesis into one sentence, it's this. The church in the Western world has forgotten who she is, and she desperately needs to remember. So in my opinion, the loss of size and status and significance that the church is experiencing in New Zealand and the Western world is not a tragedy, but a huge opportunity. Through these losses, through our our weaknesses, we have this opportunity to rediscover that at our core, we are a profoundly supernatural entity. Not in spite of these challenges, but because of them. I believe we have the opportunity to remember what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. To understand that we're not called to be a player in society, but an institution that is fundamentally constituted by God's Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that the church is fundamentally constituted by God's Spirit? I think when most people think of the role of the Spirit in the life of the church, what they do in their head is they kind of divide um, what what happens in church up into two different categories. So there are are kind of the normal activities, you know, Coming along to a service, uh, going to your home group, setting up the chairs before Sunday morning uh, services, washing the dishes, chatting to people after the service is over, um, all that kind of thing. It's not that the Spirit is not involved in these activities, it's just that He's not particularly active in them. Then there are the super exceptional things that happen. You know, If you go to a home group and it was really, really good, you'd say, oh, the Spirit really moved in that meeting. Or if, you know, Reuben or Michael preaches a particularly touching sermon, we'll say, wow, that was a really anointed sermon. Or if something truly miraculous happens, but, you know, something just way out of the ordinary, like someone gets healed or walks on water or has their face shine like a light bulb, then we'll say, wow, the Spirit was really moving in our church. The Bible simply does not talk about the Spirit that way, it does not make that kind of distinction. What I wanted to do this morning, basically, it's really simple, is to tell you what the Bible does say about the role of the Spirit in the church. And I don't think that what I'm saying today is, is revolutionary, and I don't think it's going to surprise or shock you. I just think we've forgotten it, and we need to remember. Though I like preaching those sermons, you know, where... Um, um, People are sort of, you know, challenged and confronted and, and it teaches them new things and inspires them to action and sacrifice. I like preaching those sermons, but this is not really one of those sermons. This is not a sermon that you actually have to do anything about. It's not about doing. The sum total of my hope is at the end of the sermon, you'll sit back and you say, how awesome is God and how great is it that I get to be part of his church? So the question we're asking, what is the role of the Spirit in the church? What does the Spirit do in the church? And the first answer to that question, and the most important answer, in fact, the only answer that I'm going to talk about today is this. The Spirit makes the church the church. No spirit, no church, right? Or to put it positively, and this is this wonderful quote from an early church father named Irenaeus. Where the Spirit of God is, there is the church, and all manner of grace. Do you like that? I love that. Where the Spirit of God is, there is the church and all manner of grace. You see, the Spirit forms us as Christ's body, the church. Let's see if we can unpack that sentence a little bit. The Spirit forms us as Christ's body. First, I'm a lecturer, so here's a quiz. Um, for just as your... What I want you to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the first half of a quote, and what I want you to do is to turn to the person next to you and tell them what the end of the quote is, the very last word in this quote. Here we go. For, it's a very familiar quote, for just as your physical body is one and yet has many parts, and all the parts, though many, are members of one physical body, so it is with what? Turn to the person next to you and tell them what the answer is. Just flick onto the next slide for me. Yep. Yeah. I think most people would say the answer to this is the church, right? There's a sentence that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Um, For just as your physical body is one and yet has many parts, and all the parts, though many, are members of the one physical body, so it is with the church. That would make sense, right? We're all individuals... And we all act together with one purpose, one goal, one vision. That's what the church is. It's a lovely metaphor that tells us how we ought to function together, how we ought to work optimally together. That would make perfectly sense. That would make perfectly sense. That was a brilliant sentence, wasn't it? That would make perfect sense. But it is not how Paul finishes this sentence. Paul does not say... For just as your physical body is one and yet has many parts, and all the parts though many are members of the one physical body, so it is with the church. What he says is, so it is with Christ. Which at first doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, Christ is an individual. He's, Jesus is just one person. What does it mean, talking about the parts of Jesus? Does it mean like his parts of his physical body, his, his hands and his feet, his small intestines? Well, no, of course not. That's, that's, that's not what Paul is saying here. In fact, the only way that you can make sense of what Paul is saying here is to recognise that Paul uses the word Christ and the word church more or less interchangeably. For Paul, the word Christ and the word church mean almost the same thing. And it's not just Paul who gets mixed up between these two words, Jesus does it too. In fact, Paul probably got the idea from Jesus. Do you remember way back when Paul was Saul? He was going from house to house, dragging Christians off to jail. He's on his way to Damascus. He sees this blinding light and a voice from God speaks to him that says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But if Paul Paul was not persecuting Jesus because Jesus had died, he'd risen, he'd gone back to be with the Father. Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. Even Jesus doesn't make this distinction. You persecute the church, you persecute me. Even for Jesus, the word Christ and the word church mean virtually the same thing. Now, there are three ways that the Bible talks about the connection between the church and Christ. So the first one is it says that the the church was founded by Christ. So Christ breathed the Spirit on the church and the church came to be. That's the reason the church exists. The church exists because of Christ. Second, it says that the church is like Christ. So what the Spirit does is to empower us and to encourage us to do the kinds of things that Christ did. So the church is founded by Christ. The church is like Christ. But much more important than any of these is the third one, the church is in Christ and Christ is in the church. There's this kind of this deep organic connection between Christ and the church that's not in the past, it's not metaphorical, but it's true. It's true now, it's literally true, incredibly deep and profound and pivotal way. Now there are a number of different ways that the Bible talks about this, inor- this, this organic connection between Christ and the church. For example, it talks about uh, the church as being Christ's bride The two shall become one. It talks about um, Christ being the fullness of us, who fills all in every way. But the most powerful image that the Bible uses to get this idea across is it says that the church is Christ's body. And the important thing to realize here is that when Paul says, We are the body of Christ, it's not just a metaphor for how we should act, it's not just a cute illustration for how we should all work together, it's the truth. It's a fundamental statement of reality. It's a profound description of the essence of our existence. Who are we? What makes us who we are? The church is the body of Christ. In in a sense, the church is Christ and Christ is the church. You might be thinking, oh, jeepers, you're going a bit far here, Greg. I assure you, I'm not. I'm not. It is really difficult theologically to over-exaggerate the closeness of the union between Christ and the church and as Protestants we almost always do the exact opposite. We almost always over-exaggerate the differences between them. The best way of thinking about this is is kind of think about it like the Trinity. You know, in the Trinity, you have this kind of confusion, you know? Is there one person or is there three? Is the Father the same as the Son or is the Father different from the Son? And the answer to that, as good theological students will tell you, is yes. Yes, yes. The Father is different from the Son, and the Father is the same as the Son. The two have become one. And the reason why you can say the two have become one is because of the Spirit. The Spirit is this bond of love that joins two things into one. It's the Spirit that enables the Father and the Son to be united together as one. It's the Spirit, because of the Spirit, that Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But, and here's the point. What the Spirit does in eternity, in the Trinity, is almost exactly the same as what the Spirit does in time, in the church. The Spirit takes two things that are different from each other and brings them together and makes them one. He takes Christ and the church and he makes them one. In fact, this is is exactly what Paul says in the the next verse from the one that we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For we were all baptised by one Spirit so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. See, this is what the spirit does. The rest is fluff and bubbles. The spirit forms us as Christ's body, the church. The spirit takes two things, Christ and the church, and brings them together as one. The spirit is the bond of love that joins not just the Father and the Son in eternity, in the Trinity, but Christ and the church in time. Through the spirit, the church and the Christ are one. We have been made one with him. Now, there's an important point here, and it can sometimes get missed. The thing that the Spirit unites with Christ is not kind of you as an individual, and you as an individual, and, and you as an individual, but all of us together as the church. All of us, and all of us together kind of thing that are united with Christ. Often when we read the Bible, we, we, we think it says, you are this or you are that. We think it's talking to us as, as individuals, but in the vast majority of occasions, it's actually not. What actually trips us up here is English. English, great language, but it has some flaws in it. And in English, when you use the word you, you don't know whether or not you're talking to a single person or to many different people. You don't know, you know whether you is singular or plural. So if I was to say, would you like to come round to lunch after church today, you don't know whether I'm saying, would you, Michael, like to come round to church after lunch today, or whether I'm saying, would... You, like all of you, like to come round for for lunch. I'm I'm staggering because my wife is going, whoo, how will we manage that? But that's fine. So Which makes you wish, and here's the title of the sermon, that the Bible is written in Texan rather than the Queen's English. Because in Texas, you see, they don't have this problem. If I was in Texas and I wanted to invite all of you round for lunch, what would I say? Would you all like to come round for lunch today? Yeah. (laughs) So if the Bible's written in text and life would be a whole lot easier for us, and we get this idea if it's about all of us. Because Paul, when Paul says you are in Christ and Christ is in you, he's not saying you are in Christ and you are in Christ and you are in Christ, and that's that's not his point. His point is you all are in Christ, right? And Christ is in y'all, every single one of you. You all are the body of Christ. Christ is in you all, and you all are in Christ. I feel like I should be asking for an amen here or something like this at this stage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's another example um, written a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, where people always get mixed up up here. When Paul says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 3, he's not actually talking about individual bodies. Paul's not saying like your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing, you know, to eat right and exercise and live healthy lives, look after your physical body. But that is not Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 3. He's talking to a group. He's talking to all you all. Body, the one of those, of you all, all of you together, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The single body of the many yous, so language doesn't work brilliantly here, does it, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said, the Bible actually doesn't talk that much. This really shocked me when I found it out. The Bible doesn't talk that much about the Holy Spirit being given to individuals. It's actually a point I looked at in depth in my thesis, my study. I actually argue there are no places that the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being given to individuals. No, the Holy Spirit is a gift to the church. The one Holy Spirit baptizes us into one body and unites us together to Jesus turning us from a collection of autonomous and individual, separate individuals into one single unified body of Christ. Now you think that through because that has massive implications. Like massive, massive implications. The point that the Spirit is given to all of us together and not just to each of us individually. There's lots of people these days, right, they're just opting out of church. They're either opting out physically by just not coming at all or they're opting out emotionally by not giving themselves to it. You know, some people opt out, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12, because they think they've got nothing to offer. You know, they look at, I don't know, Michael's IT ability or or Grant's music leadership or something like that, and they say, well, because I'm not like them, I have nothing worthwhile to give, so I'm just going to take a back seat. But Paul says, that's just dumb. That's, That's insane. I mean, we're a body. We belong together. Imagine an ear saying to an eye, I can't see as well as you, so I've got nothing to offer. That's insane, absolutely insane. But some people do that. I don't think it's that common these days. I tell you what is common these days. Some people opt out for other reasons. Some people don't give themselves to the church because they've got so much going on outside the church. Hey, I've got my own life to lead. (laughs) I'm busy. They opt out because they're so busy elsewhere. But surely that is just as ridiculous as what Paul said before, right? You see, small intestines don't have the option of opting out of a body. It just doesn't work like that, right? Neither do we. The same is true for members of Christ's body. Every single little bit of us is a part of the body all the time. Everything we do is what the body does, without any exceptions whatsoever. So Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, well, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And you could take that to mean, well, you know, if one person is sick, we should all feel sympathy. And I guess, I mean, Paul probably means that, but I think he actually means something way more profound than that. You see, if my, if my hand is paralysed and not working like it should, then not only does my hand not do what it has to do, but my whole body suffers. Because I don't just lose the services of my hand, the rest of my body has to compensate because my hand is not doing what it's supposed to do. Different parts of the body have to do things that they weren't designed to do. Do you see? The reason why we must all be involved in the body of Christ is because we are all involved in the body of Christ, whether we realize it or like it or not. We are all part of the church of God here on the North Shore. We're all part of the body of Christ, and we all have our part to play, and no one can opt out or minimize their involvement with the whole church suffering because of it. And for many of us, that leads to really hard questions. What about me? Am I giving myself to the body of Christ? Am I playing my part? Am I using my giftings and skills given to the body, to the spirit, for the body? Or is the church having to compensate because of me? Paul says, if one member opts out, doesn't do what he or she was designed for, then all the rest of the members suffer because of it. Is the body of Christ here at Shore Community, is it suffering because of you? hard questions. I was talking a little while ago about the Trinity, and just as we sort of get towards the end, um, I want to go back to that. Now, I realize, um, I mean, I'm a, I, I do theology, and I know that there is no word in the Christian vocabulary that is likely to strike fear into the hearts of people more than the word Trinity. You know, you go one, three, three, one, Here, yeah. <laughs> well, where do you go with that? How do you do it? And so, what I want to do is see if, just as we get near the end here, see if I can attempt to describe it to you in a way that makes sense so you get past all of the 1331 mystery and actually see the beauty of what's going on here. So, what I want you to do, imagine, if you can, the best relationship that you've ever had with anyone. You probably know what I'm talking about, what these kinds of relationships are like. You have this friend, and you can tell what's going on with them even before they say anything. You're always talking and listening with one another. You're always letting each other know what's going on. You always want to be together. Everything you do to together you do together. You hate you hate being apart. In fact, sometimes you feel so close to this person that it feels like they're a part of you and you're a part of them. It seems like you're almost like the same person even though you're different. Now, the closest I've ever come to a relationship like that is the relationship that I have with my wife. Sometimes, and just to be completely honest, not all the time, because sometimes it's incredibly hard, but sometimes my relationship with my wife, it just, it clicks. It's great. It feels like we're close. We're understanding each other. It's awesome. And you can probably think of someone as well who your, your relationship with them, it kind of, it peaks this close to perfection where everything just kind of clicks. Well, that, that peak that the best of our relationships reach at only the very, very best of times, if you put that on steroids, that's what it's like between the members of the Trinity all the time. The Bible says they they indwell each other. They do everything together. That they're so tight, they're so close, they're so in tune with each other that instead of being their three different consciousnesses, there's three different people, there's actually only one. You know, some people have this idea that the, the personality of God is, is, is dour or, or, or lifeless, that he's some kind of soulless entity with no personality, like that he created the earth because he was bored and had nothing else to do. I just want to tell you that's completely wrong. It's not even close to right. God, the three-person God that is the Trinity, it has this extraordinarily exciting relationship where everything clicks all the time. It's a relationship so good that even at their very best, our relationships only give us like this dimmest reflection of what it's really like. Can you imagine what it would be like to be part of that? Can you imagine? Imagine the love. Imagine the camaraderie. Imagine the acceptance. Imagine what it would be like to always be understood exactly the way you mean something. To always be accepted. To to always be part of something that's bigger than you. Wouldn't you love to be part of something like that? Well, here's the truth. You are you are. Or, let's be completely technically correct here, you all are, right? All you all are participants in the life of the Trinity. Think it through, right? The church is in Christ. We've established that, right? The church and Christ have been united together by the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. He makes us one with Christ. But Christ is in God. Christ is united with the Father by the Spirit. So, if you all are in the church, and you are, and the church is in Christ, and He is, and Christ is in God, and He is, then you're in God. You're a participant in the life of the Trinity. And that's not the end of it. Like As if that wouldn't be enough. There's more. Um, The wonderful thing, the beauty of what God has arranged here is that as we enjoy our life in God, as we participate by the Spirit in that kind of intimate Trinitarian union between Father and the Son, our community here, our community of fraught and frail and sinful human beings begins to look a little bit like him. That's what Jesus prayed in his prayer. right? That, you know, remember that beautiful prayer at the end of John, uh, John 17? This is what Jesus said. My prayer is that they may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may know, may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The um, great Mennonite theologian, Stanley Howe he says that the first and greatest missionary task of the church in the world is just to be the church. I think he's exactly right. My prayer is that through the current challenges that we're experiencing here in New Zealand and the West, as through our growing weakness, that we'll rediscover that we're not called primarily to be a player in society, but an institution that is profoundly and irreducibly supernatural. My hope is that we can learn to define ourselves not by our position in the world, but by our participation in the Trinitarian life of God. My dream is that we will learn to view the church not just as a human institution, but as something that is profoundly constituted by God's Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, What was it that um, Grant said earlier? It was, um, God did not die to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. And I guess we could add to that, God did not die to make the church perfect. God died to make the church his. We belong to you because of the Spirit and because of what you've done for us. Help us, please, or maybe first, forgive us for those times when we've tried to wrench back control of the church into our own human agenda and help us to give it back to you. Help us to learn to see the Spirit at work in our churches in the most mundane, ordinary things as well as the spectacular. Help us to be able to see Christ through the church because Christ is truly in and among us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.